From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Does the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency have a right, indeed a duty, to regulate carbon dioxide on the grounds that global warming is a hazard to public health? A dozen states and several advocacy groups say yes. If EPA wants to find authority in the statute, it doesn't have to look very far. It's right there in the plain language of the Clean Air Act. But the EPA says that will be going too far. If Congress intended us to, to sort of change our society they would have said that. Um, And there's nothing to indicate that anybody in Congress ever thought the Clean Air Act was designed to do that. Also, listening in as the marshlands of North Dakota come alive with the migrants of spring. Birds from another world and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Two years ago this month, Iraqi citizens and U.S. soldiers in Baghdad brought down the statue of Saddam Hussein, and with it, a dictatorship that had oppressed millions. It seemed the Iraqi people could finally rebuild their country. But since then, there have been multiple roadblocks to reconstruction, and pollution is one of them. With me to discuss the environmental challenges of Iraq is T. Christian Miller. He's a staff reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and he joins me now from Washington, D.C. Hello, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been back and forth to Baghdad several times this year, uh, filing stories on the restoration effort there. And I guess you're going back shortly. Yes, I should be going back next month. In particular, what are the environmental challenges that Iraqi people are facing today? There's just a myriad of environmental challenges. Um, there's polluted rivers. The, the Tigris and the Euphrates both were the dumping grounds for any number of industrial plants that were dumping without any regulation at all for decades under Saddam Hussein. It continues that way today. There's no been no real effort to rein in the pollution going into those rivers. The air quality is certainly, uh, you can see it affected by the, the power plants when they occasionally run. It's just simply black emissions. I, I recall talking to a, an engineer who, who just said that the environment is not something they're worried about right now. They're worried about getting the power plants running, and the environment will come later. Let's talk about water quality. In a recent article, you described a sewage treatment plant called Kirk is well, it really sounded like a disaster there. Um, how widespread is this problem with uh, sewage in Iraq right now? Yeah, certainly the sewage and waterfront has been a widespread disaster. If there's been any one area of the reconstruction which has completely failed to deliver, it's in the water, clean water and, and treatment of sewage areas. And that's because uh, the system that the U.S. found when it arrived was at the point of collapse. There were crumbling sewer pipes. There were sewage plants that hadn't been operational for years. I mean, and you have to understand, Baghdad is a city of about six or seven million people, and there's just no sewage treatment at all. Everything, everything that gets flushed on the toilets in Baghdad ends up getting dumped directly into uh, the rivers. So in the case of Kirk, the idea was we'll get this one plant up and running, and we'll at least have a, some capacity to treat sewage again and clean it before we dump it into the Tigris River. What happened is the U.S. dedicated about $20 million to that project, got it running again, turned it over to the Iraqis, and within a question of a few months, the Iraqis had run it into the ground, and the plant was as bad as it had ever been, and it was essentially non-functional. 
is this corruption, people stealing stuff, or just people not showing up for work? What happened? I think there's a variety of things. Yeah, corruption was certainly part of it. And there was also just plain failure by the U.S. to really pay attention. Their, the U.S. stance is, after we turn over to the Iraqis, it's their problem. Uh, we've made the investment. They have to run it. And so even if they're running to the ground, we're not going to intercede to stop them. And finally, there is the problem with the Iraqis just not showing up for work, not maintaining the plant, not particularly caring because they're getting paid whether they show up or not. So what does it matter if the sewage plant goes south? It doesn't really matter to them. Um, T, how do Iraqis uh, view their environment today? That's a good question. I venture to guess, based on a few conversations I've had on this topic, that it's a concern for Iraqis, especially on the clean water issue. I mean, there's many, many hundreds of thousands of children have died in Iraq from waterborne diseases. But I would also say that the environment is certainly not the highest priority amongst many Iraqis for whom the issues of security and daily living really take precedence. T. Christian Miller is a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. T., thanks for taking this time with me today. I'm glad I could be there. Another name for Iraq is the Cradle of Civilization. That's because an area of vast wetlands in southern Iraq at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates River is considered by some scholars to be the Garden of Eden. During the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein began draining 2,000 square miles of these wetlands in an attempt to rout rebels hiding there. Most of the people living in the area fled, and the once massive marsh lost more than 90% of its original size. But since the fall of Baghdad, the great marshlands of Mesopotamia have started to come back. Joining me is Azam Awash, a civil engineer and founder of Eden Again, one of several groups helping to restore the marshlands. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me why you care so much about this place? Why is it so unusual? Steve, I grew up in and around the marshes. As a young man, I used to accompany my father in his frequent visits into the various hamlets or between the various hamlets trying to resolve water disputes. And that experience has basically uh, has not left me. Uh, it's with me and has been with me for the last 25, 30 years, having uh, left Iraq in 1978. Since coming to this country, uh, or when I uh, was living in the United States, I uh, was an avid kayaker, and I used to tell my wife, uh, wait until uh, Iraq is liberated. We'll go kayak in this heaven on earth, this uh, magical place called uh, the Ahwar, the marshes of southern Iraq. If you you spend a couple hours there, um, you just can't help but fall in love with the place, where nature and man have become integrated into one, where man has affected the evolution of the system, and the system has affected the growth of this of this water culture. This, the Sumerian way of life still exists today. The people of the marshes are still using the same skills that they have used for 7,000 years to survive this environment. It's a magical place. What did it look like at its worst point after this diversion and draining? I visited the area for the first time in 25 years in June of 2003, uh, just right after the liberation of Iraq. And instead of these rivers of water and, and, and these mountains of reeds, what I saw was dry, desiccated land that extended as far as the eye can see with desert plants, zur, or uh, what they, what's called uh, tamarax in, uh, in the scientific uh, name, everywhere. Instead of these reed beds, instead of the hamlets, I saw platforms where, where bricks uh, that formerly were, were houses or reeds that had been burnt uh, existed. There was no life, um, there's no fish, there's no water, there's no human beings. It was a desert. 
Can you describe for me what the marshes look like now? The people of the marshes, uh, as the troops were going up north, Baghdad had not fallen yet, began breaking the dikes and the control structures that held the water away from these marshes, and they started returning the water to their marshes as early as the second week of April. And uh, as it turns out, they, uh, the, by their action, they had essentially uh, saved me a big step. One of the major steps that I thought I was going to have to take is to try to convince the Iraqi people that, in fact, the marshes need to be restored. Well, that, that, that war need not be fought. Uh, people were actually eager to return to the marshes. And by their own actions, they actually told us which part of the marshes they want to restore first because they, in fact, voted with their own hands, if you will. Nature is an incredible force. You know, we were worried that uh, it's going to take a long time for the restoration to take place. As it happens, in southern Iraq, all you need to do is introduce water. Uh, now, grant you, I'll grant you that, that, uh, that it's not just as simple as introducing water. But the introduction of water has caused reeds to grow back. People have started moving back in. Uh, what is our major challenge at this point is how to make sure that the areas that have been inundated or flooded continue to thrive. What are some of the keys that you have found uh, to restoration? What does nature do, and, and how might you have to help nature where the restoration process isn't going so well? Mm-hmm. What we have learned is that the marshes evolved around this idea of the fresh pulse of water coming in, timed in the spring, with the snow melts in the mountains of Iraq and Turkey. This fresh pulse of water comes in uh, just about as we speak right now, between February and April or May. And you have 60% of the water resources that goes into Iraq used to come into, into, in, into Iraq during these three months. So every year, there is this brackishness that accumulates in the water. And then there is this pulse of flood water that comes in in the spring, just as the reeds come back from dormancy, just as the fish uh, swims back from the Gulf into the marshes to spawn, just as the birds are migrating. Uh, this, this whole cycle of nature kind of, kind of timed to, to recreate the, the li- cycle of life starting in the spring. What about the source of water for this marshland? Um, the headwaters, of course, of the Euphrates aren't in Iraq, but across the border in Turkey. And I gather there's some tensions there. How do you think this situation can be resolved? For complete restoration, for making sure that we will have these marshes forevermore and our great-great-great-grandchildren can enjoy this place, we need to reach an agreement between Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria about the equitable sharing of the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates. What I am advocating at this point in time with the Iraqi government is that they need to reach discussions with Turkey and they need to move from their existing position. The existing position of the Iraqi government is that we have a historical right for the water of the Tigris and Euphrates because we were the first developers of the water resources of that area. However, if we insist on this position, we are going to end up with discussions for 50 years without reaching a solution. Uh, what I'm suggesting to Iraq is that they should buy electricity from Turkey. If they buy electricity from Turkey, then uh, water is going to have to be released from these dams and the, to generate electricity. And we get electricity as a, at a reasonable price uh, with the water as a byproduct. Uh, that is quite possible, actually. This is not dream talk. Turkey wants to join the European Union, and one of the conditions of accession to the Union is that they have to resolve the water disputes uh, uh, between between Turkey, Syria, and, and Iraq. Now, you said that the restoration of the marsh is uh, really a symbol that life after Saddam Hussein can be better. To what extent has that been realized? 
I can take you on a tour of Kermashia area and Jibayish area and show you the returning refugees who have come back from Iran. These people were Marsh Arabs who, what, some of them were systematically exterminated by Saddam Hussein and and those who stayed alive were, what, in jail, tortured, uh, fled over the border to to Iran? Is that who you're talking about? All of of the above. Uh, 70,000 people have uh, had gone to Iran in 92, 93, 94. About 30,000 came to the United States as refugees. Uh, A lot of them were internally displaced. And, of course, the mass graves stand as silent reminders to us of the fate of many of those who um, did not listen to the central government and and wanted freedom. So what are the odds of getting a meaningful restoration of the, the marshes of southern Iraq or, as you folks would say, the original Eden? The restoration has already started. We have uh, 30 to 40 percent of the origin, of the marshes that existed in 1990 alive and well today. So it's a reality. Uh, now, ha- our goal, obviously our final goal, is to restore the marshes or return as much as, as possible. Getting it all back is rather not possible. Um, realistically speaking, I would say if we return to 1990 uh, conditions, we are... Uh, 100% successful, and I'm uh, about 90% sure that we can get back to 1990. Azam Alwash started the project Eden again. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you for having me. up, should the EPA regulate carbon dioxide on the grounds global warming is a health hazard? A federal court is to decide. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. A lawsuit pending before the D.C. Court of Appeals could determine whether the U.S. will regulate greenhouse gases emissions tied to global warming. The Environmental Protection Agency says it has no authority to do that. Attorneys general for a dozen states and most of the country's major environmental groups disagree. They sued the EPA to allow the regulation of greenhouse gases from automobiles. Massachusetts Assistant Attorney General Jim Milkey argued the case in federal court in Washington. Our argument can be simplified that uh, if, if EPA wants to find authority in the statute, it doesn't have to look very far. It's right there in the plain language uh, of the Clean Air Act. Now, if Assistant Attorney General Milkey is right, it could bring big changes to the auto industry and beyond. Joining me now to talk about that is our Washington correspondent, Jeff Young. Jeff, hello. Hi, Steve. Now, why is Mr. Milkey so confident that the EPA does have this power to regulate greenhouse gases? Well, he points to sections of the Clean Air Act that define air pollutants and include things that pose a risk to public health or welfare. And then the act's definition of that includes effects on weather and climate. And then what might happen if the EPA were to regulate these emissions from cars and trucks? Well, probably car makers would have to boost fuel efficiency. That would be the easiest way to put out fewer greenhouse gases per, per mile. Uh, or maybe they'd make cars that used alternative fuels. Uh, no one really had a good guess as to what the regulation would look like exactly. But one thing is pretty clear, and, and this is where all the parties involved agree, this would be a very big deal. The environmental groups see this issue of authority to regulate these emissions as as the key legal hurdle that they must overcome if they're going to get the world's biggest emitter, the U.S., to to do something about climate change. Uh, U.S. autos account for about 5 percent of the world's man-made greenhouse gases, so this could lead to some major reductions. And I imagine industry takes this pretty seriously as well. 
Oh, yes. Uh, EPA gets support here from nearly every major industry lobby. You've got the oil industry, the automakers, the electric utilities, the mining association, and more, all of them joining this suit. Well, I can understand why the automakers are concerned, but, but the utilities and the mining companies? Well, they want to stop this regulation before it gets to them. Marlo Lewis at the conservative think tank Competitive Enterprise Institute has written a lot about this, and he told me that uh, this case could set precedent for much broader action. If the EPA were ever to begin regulating carbon dioxide emissions from automobiles, that would trigger a flood of litigation to regulate every sector of the U.S. economy. And I think that uh, all of the energy-intensive industries in the country know that if the attorneys general succeed here, that their neck is next on the chopping block. Now, we heard the uh, state's attorney say that this is an open and shut case, Jeff. Uh, So what's the EPA argument here? Well, uh, EPA's main point goes back to that idea that this would be such a major change. Jeffrey Homestead is an assistant administrator at EPA, and he says if the lawmakers who wrote the Clean Air Act really wanted that kind of big change, they, they would have made it more clear. It's a very big deal. Most of our transportation depends on fossil fuel. Most of our power generation depends on fossil fuel. If Congress intended us to, to sort of change our society, they would have said that. Um, and there's nothing to indicate that anybody in ever, Congress ever thought the Clean Air Act was designed to do that. Now, one interesting thing about this is that's not what EPA used to think. Oh, how's that? Well, under the Clinton administration, EPA issued a legal opinion and told a congressional committee that the Clean Air Act did indeed give them this authority to consider greenhouse gases pollutants and to regulate them. Now, the environmental groups complained that the Clintonites weren't especially eager to to act on that authority. But uh, under the Bush administration, EPA reversed it altogether. And then uh, President Bush also reversed his position on regulating greenhouse gases at about that time, didn't he? Uh, Yes. Uh, As candidate in 2000, he had pledged to cap carbon dioxide from power plants. And then as president, he changed his mind on that. Of course, the environmental groups uh, look at this and they say both of these reversals are because the administration has such uh, close ties to the energy industry. Uh, Sierra Club lawyer David Bookbinder points out some of the obvious connections there. You don't have to go further than to look at the fact that the current White House chief of staff, Andy Card, is the former chief of the American Automobile Manufacturers Alliance, um, and that the president and vice president are proud to represent themselves as oil men. And the lawyer who argued this case for EPA, Jeffrey Clark, used to argue cases for the automakers back when he was in private practice. Jeff, when will we know what the judges will decide? We'll probably have a decision by August. Uh, It's assumed that no matter who wins, there will be an appeal, and probably this is going to the Supreme Court. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. From the courtroom, we turn to the boardroom, where greenhouse gas emissions now figure into the business plans of some of the nation's largest energy companies. Paul Anderson, CEO of Duke Energy, recently sent ripples through the industry with a pledge to reduce carbon dioxide emissions even if they drove up the price of Duke's electricity. Mr. Anderson even invoked the T-word, calling for a national tax on carbon dioxide emissions to curb global climate change. Joining me is John Holdren, Heinz Professor of Environmental Policy at Harvard University and co-chair of the National Commission on Energy Policy. Professor Holdren, some people say Paul Anderson is out of his mind. I mean, Investor's Business Daily calls his statements, I quote, a total capitulation to environmental extremists. 
Duke generates nearly 30% of its energy through coal-fired CO2-emitting power plants. Is the company biting the hand that feeds it with a proposal to tax carbon dioxide emissions? I don't think so. I think there are a variety of good reasons that uh, the Duke CEO has called uh, now for a carbon tax. He indicated, uh, first of all, that good business uh, in the world today requires attention not just to the economic bottom line, but to a company's responsibilities for the environment and for the improvement of society. He talks about a triple bottom line. He says uh, that very clearly the climate change uh, issue is a, a pressing issue in the United States and in the world today and that we're going to have to do something about it. And he says if we're going to have to do something about it, it makes sense to do it in a way that affects sources of carbon dioxide emissions across the energy sector so that you don't just catch the power plants, you catch the automobiles, you catch the home furnaces, you catch the industrial processes. The carbon tax approach, which he is recommending, would do that. So in a way, you could regard this uh, proposal as a sort of a preemptive strike. Let's propose something sensible before somebody else imposes an approach to this problem which would be much more onerous and much less effective. So why would a tax be better at reducing greenhouse gas emissions than other regulatory approaches, uh, such as a cap-and-trade scheme? Well, first of all, uh, in the case of a tax, the government specifies the price and the market works out the quantity in the sense that people figure out what's the optimum uh, level of emissions given how much you have to pay for each ton of carbon you emit into the atmosphere. In the case of the cap-and-trade scheme, you set the quantity and the market works out the price. The tax and the cap-and-trade approaches are identical in their uh, impact uh, on the problem and on the economy. Uh, many people in the United States have preferred the cap-and-trade approach largely because the T word, the tax word, uh, has been anathema in the U.S. political system for quite some time. Nobody dares utter the tax word in Washington, D.C. And so the fear is that any uh, tax proposal uh, would be dead on arrival uh, in the U.S. Congress. How hard of a sell do you think uh, Paul Anderson's idea is going to be to Wall Street and to the shareholders of Duke Energy? Well, I think the quote you mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast saying that he had succumbed to environmental extremism is, in fact, an example of extremism of different kind. Uh, I don't think that the position that Mr. Anderson espoused is regarded as extreme any longer uh, in the mainstream of American industry. I talked to lots of folks uh, from the electric utility industry, from the automobile industry, from the oil industry, and, in fact, the idea that we have to do something uh, specific, something mandatory, something across the board with respect to carbon dioxide emissions is now very widely understood in industry. The extremists are really the ones who continue to insist that there's nothing to this problem and that we don't have to do anything about it. John Holdren is the Heinz Professor of Environmental Policy at Harvard University and the co-chair of the National Commission on Energy Policy. Thanks for taking this time with me today, John. Thank you very much, Steve. Scientists, including Professor Holdren, say the term climate change underplays the impact humans are having on the planet. Climate disruption would be a better term, he says, for the way things are changing. And perhaps nowhere is that more on people's minds than in California. The wide mood swings in the weather pattern known as El Nino delighted skiers this past winter as it brought 25 feet of snow to the Sierra Nevada mountains. But the snowy feasts can easily swing to drought, 
and some scientists predict overall rising temperatures could cut the state's snowfall in half over the next 50 years. This uncertainty and volatility has California's ski industry taking on the issue of global warming. From KQED in San Francisco, Andrea Kissick has our story. On a sunny Saturday at Heavenly Ski Resort in South Lake Tahoe, skiers and snowboarders are enjoying one of the best seasons in decades. With a thick snowpack and every lift open, it's hard to believe this mountain could ever look like the dry Nevada desert spread out to the east in the valley below. There's a place that doesn't have the water or the snowpack that we do. Andrew Strain is vice president of planning for Heavenly, the biggest ski resort in Tahoe. Wearing a silver and red striped jacket and goggles, Strain looks down 9,000 feet from the top of the Tamarack chairlift. What a dry, scrubby landscape that is with low pinion pine, juniper, and cheatgrass. That's not the the forest that we want here in Lake Tahoe, but uh, that's, I think, what you're going to find if the snowpack is dramatically reduced because of global warming. Snow dots the south shore of Lake Tahoe below and blankets the Sierra Nevada beyond. If scientists are right, in many places where strain now sees snow, in a couple of decades, there would be rain. We're changing the climate because of things that we're doing, particularly burning oil and gas and coal. Peter Glick is president of the Pacific Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based in Oakland. He's an international expert on fresh water supply. Glick says as industrial emissions warm the earth, it changes weather patterns. This is something that I think skiers understand viscerally. On a warm day, we know that we better be skiing higher up on the mountain or we're going to run into the slush at the bottom of the mountain. That's what global warming is going to produce. More and more slush at the bottom of the mountains, and the good snow is going to retreat toward the top. Last year, UC Berkeley, Stanford, and UC San Diego released a report on how climate change is affecting California. The study found if auto, industrial, and agricultural emissions continue unchecked, California could lose more than 70% of its snowpack by the end of the century. In the next several decades, snow that generally falls at five or 6,000 feet could climb to more than 7,000 feet. This kind of worst-case scenario worries Heavenly's Andrew Strain. The length of the runs would be short. The length of the season would be shortened. You'd find more crowding as a the same amount of skiers would crowd into uh, a smaller area. You wouldn't be able to ski all the way down to 6,000 feet like we can today. Less snow also means the plants and animals that live at higher elevations may be squeezed right off the top of the mountain as they're forced upward to follow the receding snow line. In the spring, according to the Pacific Institute, early snowmelt could cause flooding and leave less water for the months that are more vulnerable to drought. More than 30 nations have agreed to cut their industrial emissions under the International Kyoto Protocol. But the U.S. was one of just two industrial nations not to accept the treaty. Environmentalists have worked hard in the U.S. to get climate change taken seriously. They're hopeful about their new alliance with big development ski resorts. Uh, I think that there are people out there who would look at this as a partnership of strange bedfellows. John Coithman with the Natural Resources Defense Council. We looked at this as an opportunity to focus on solutions to one set of environmental challenges where we know that we have a crystal clear agenda in common 
uh, was a real no-brainer. The joint campaign called Keep Winter Cool recruited top athletes to record public service announcements, urging skiers to do their part, like carpooling to the slopes. Hi, I'm Peekaboo Street. While it's a beautiful winter right now, scientists say that global warming means shorter seasons with less snow. That is definitely not cool. But we can help solve global warming by using better technology. California ski resorts are rolling out alternative energy solutions. Mammoth Mountain has added solar to power some of the chairlifts. North Star at Tahoe is purchasing wind energy credits. Heavenly is adding cleaner mass transit to South Lake Tahoe and built a gondola from the center of town up the mountain to encourage skiers to leave their cars below. 71 U.S. ski resorts are supporting the McCain-Lieberman Climate Stewardship Act. The bill would cut carbon dioxide emissions from U.S. industry. It was defeated last year after heavy lobbying by auto, oil, and coal. Andrew Strain says ski resorts need to stand up to those interests. The ski industry has to lead and not follow in the efforts to bring global warming to the forefront of public policy debate and discussion. We can't sit by and watch the discussion go by. We have to be involved, and we have to be involved in a leadership role. That role hasn't helped federal legislation to reduce global warming. But in California, ski resorts were influential in pushing lawmakers to adopt the toughest state auto emission standards in the country, scheduled to go into effect in 2009. For Living on Earth, I'm Andrea Kissick. During a recent late-night drive on a desolate country road, commentator Tom Montgomery Fate encountered a gory, haunting scene. The efficiency of nature, he found, doesn't always come with a pretty picture. Late tonight, just before arriving at our farm in southwest Michigan, my headlights caught a furry animal with large triangular ears and a long tail crawling on top of some other animal. I hit the brakes and whirred backward until I could train my beams on the bloody-pointed mouth of a possum feeding on fresh roadkill a large raccoon. A cold snap had ended abruptly. In the past 24 hours, the temperature climbed from 25 to 56 degrees. Possums and raccoons don't hibernate. They're winter sleepers, meaning that after holing up in some tree trunk during the recent cold weather, these animals were lured from lethargy by the heat wave and by their stomachs. I parked six feet away from the possum with my lights still on and my window down. Ravenously hungry, he ignored me. He peeled three long strips of fur back over the raccoon's ribcage like he was shucking an ear of corn, then plunged his face into the opening under the roof of bones and into the steaming organs. The immense sparkling bowl of the night sky seemed to magnify rather than absorb the sound of the possum's munching and eerie breathing. At that moment, I felt as if I was watching an appalling act of violence rather than the cycle of creation. Which was it? The best definition I've ever found for the word violence is in an essay by the philosopher John Modeschiedler. Violence is a ripping apart, he writes. It's the end product of not thinking of things in relationship. It's a scattering. Scattering is the opposite of community. Violence is an assault on community, on belongingness, on relationship. Given this definition, the possum's disposing of the raccoon by using it to sustain itself no longer seemed gruesome or violent. Rather, it was an act of restoration, 
of restoring the balance of the natural community. How odd that the creatures most adept at tipping the balance of nature live not by instinct but reason. Given their unparalleled intellect, only humans can conceive of their role in nature, a role increasingly viewed as material opportunity rather than moral responsibility. How strange that our greatest challenge in the 21st century may be to act less like humans and more like animals, to become less violent, to consider the quiet wisdom of a possum. Tom Montgomery Fate teaches writing at College of DuPage in Glen Ellen, Illinois, and is the author of his memoir, Steady and Trembling, to be published this fall. Just ahead, from heartbreak to heartwarming, how one woman found the secret to saving orphaned baby elephants. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Verizon, providing 411 directory assistance for residential and business numbers locally or across the country. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, an avian festival for the ears. First, this note on emerging science from Katie Zemseff. There may be yet another use for the ever-versatile soybean, and it could prove a sticky solution for the wood industry. Researcher Kai Chang Lee at Oregon State University discovered the legume could make super-strong glue, and he credits his discovery to the humble sea mussel. These coastal mollusks have an uncanny ability to stick to rocks and cliffs, despite the ocean's crashing waves. Lee found the key to this clinginess in a single muscle protein. He was able to synthetically recreate this protein, but it was too costly to make in large quantities. So, while having a lunch of tofu one day, Lee wondered if the high-protein soybean could mimic the muscle protein. Turns out that by mixing soy with amino acids that have adhesive properties, he was able to make a sticky soy byproduct very similar to the muscle's protein. This soy glue can seep into wood crevices and pores, where it solidifies, creating a virtually indestructible waterproof glue. Today's wood glues are based in formaldehyde, which, when heated, give off fumes that could pose a health hazard. The soy-based glue is already in use at three mills and can be used in everything from home paneling to office desks. Along with milk, tofu, vegetable oil, and biodiesel, this newest market is good news for soybean farmers. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Katie Zemesef. In many parts of Africa, elephants are vanishing. In the 1980s alone, half the population was killed by poachers, and that prompted a worldwide ban on the sale of ivory tusks. Today, only 600,000 or so wild African elephants remain, out of perhaps 10 million two generations ago. But the killing hasn't stopped, as there is still plenty of commerce in illegal ivory as well as elephant meat. Slaughtered elephant herds often leave behind orphan baby elephants, which have little chance of survival. That is, unless they wind up in a baby elephant nursery, like the one visited by Living on Earth's Susan Shepherd in Nairobi National Park, Kenya. Keeping an orphaned elephant under two years of age alive is a tricky proposition under even the best of circumstances. Thirty years ago, it was a near-impossible task. Nothing keepers like Daphne Sheldrick fed infant elephants kept them from suffering the same fate, starvation. 
when they first come in, um, they all just want to die. They've lost their elephant family. They're very, very fragile in infancy, and they can be fine one day and dead the next. Uh, it took me 28 years to succeed in raising the, an infant African elephant. The role of animal protector is one 70-year-old Daphne Sheldrick prepared for all her life. Born in Kenya, she grew up on a farm in the highlands and cared for her first orphaned animal, an antelope, when she was three years old. In her early 20s, she moved to Savo National Park in southeast Kenya, where her husband was game warden, and she spent 30 years there learning about the psychology and sociology of elephants. You know, when you take on an elephant, it really is a lifetime, and I've been working now with elephants for 50 years. The key to keeping baby elephants alive, says Sheldrick, was finding the right formula to feed them. They couldn't digest the fat content in most milk formulas, though no one knew that was the problem until Sheldrick stumbled on something that worked through sheer luck and trial and error. The secret elixir was a mixture of coconut oil added to a fat-free milk base. I found that they could live longer on skim milk, so I knew the problem was the fat. This eureka moment was the start of the Elephant Orphan Project in Nairobi National Park, where Sheldrick convinced the government to allow her to set up this orphanage nearly 30 years ago. On a bright, warm day in Kenya, young elephants romp in a dusty clearing. They are the current crop from the more than 60 young elephants that have been brought here over the years. Edwin Lusici, their 27-year-old keeper, says they are thriving. This is a boy? Yeah, he's a boy. Nine months old now. The baby elephants spend their days chasing each other, rolling in the red clay soil, butting their heads up against anything they can find, especially against their keepers, who are more like nannies. I've been here for the past five years, and uh, uh, it's just because I like animals in general. That's why I landed getting this job. And that's the other key to keeping orphaned elephants alive. Elephants are such social creatures that they need constant company. Their keepers stay with them 24 hours a day, which means curling up right next to them to sleep at night. This elephant is called Waleni. It's about uh, five months now. She was rescued from uh, Savo East, just found lying alone in the park. As Lucici talks, one of the smallest elephants in the group puts the end of her trunk against his round, good-natured face and touches his nose, his cheek, and then covers up his eye with her nimble snout. Lucici removes her trunk gently from his face, laughing. Then she comes after my microphone. What is he doing right now? Just suckling from my fingers. Sort of like when a kid sucks his thumb? Yeah. <laughs> They're just like human babies, actually. Not every baby elephant brought to the nursery survives, and it's nearly impossible to tell which ones will make it. As Lucici explains, all of them are traumatized from being separated from their mothers or witnessing the massacre of all of the older elephants in the herd. Yeah, it's always difficult to handle when they're new because they've been in the wild and they know, only know the wildlife. And you see, they saw the human poaching the mothers, so they won't be friendly to you. It takes some time, so it's quite a difficult job to handle a new kama in the nursery. Lucici tells the story of the two-day-old elephant he helped rescue last summer. They named her Wendy, which means hope, because she seemed much too young to possibly survive. She was just found lying alone in a swamp. She was still fresh from the mother's womb. The, the, all the body was very soft. The skin, the ears were still very pink. 
In fact, she had part of the ear folded to one side. And uh, just getting hold of her, you could feel you, are, you could feel she's very slippery. She would want to fall down and very, very tiny, the tiniest I've ever seen. And so could you pick her up? Yeah. It takes about $750 a month to care for a baby elephant. The money comes mostly from donations. People around the world foster these elephants. Daphne Sheldrick says most of that money pays for the 40 pints of formula a day it takes to feed one of these infants. A lot of people say, well, oh, that's a lot of money to spend on a few little orphaned elephants. But what they don't understand is that these elephants are uh, uh, tremendously valuable for extending the knowledge about elephants. Because when you raise an animal like an elephant, you, you learn how it feels and thinks. You know it as well as your own human children. When the elephants turn two, they are trucked to Savo National Park and are gradually reintroduced into the wild. Elephants are housed and fed at a holding site, and keepers take them on long walks to introduce them to roaming wild herds. Generally quite gregarious animals, the wild elephants almost always welcome the orphans. Their keepers think life in the wild is more stimulating than living with humans, so eventually almost all of the young take up with a herd. Still, Sheldrick says many of the orphans return to the holding area on a regular basis. Another one of our females brought back a calf that had a snare around its leg. This was a wild-born calf. And, uh, of course, it was wild. Our keepers couldn't actually handle it. And it was tearing around, and Lisa, the mother, just walked into the stockades and started feeding. The calf was screaming its head off, and any mother elephant normally hearing that sound would have gone berserk. But she trusted the keepers so much that she just went on quietly feeding. And then the other orphans surrounded this calf, and sort of held it in the middle so it couldn't escape, so that our keepers could crawl underneath their bellies and remove the snare from that leg. And that just shows how intelligent elephants are and how they can reason and think. Yet, Sheldrick is the first to say that her orphanage doesn't replace elephant families. Elephants are so smart and so complex that most people who study them say we don't know the true trauma they face when they've known the violent death of a family member and lose their communities. And because we can't know, Sheldrick does what she can to give back to these creatures what they've given to us. Recent stories about the tsunami in Indonesia, where the elephants knew the moment the earthquake happened under the ocean and started fleeing uphill. And as they were going, they were picking up people and putting them on their backs and saved a lot of human lives as well. So they are incredible animals, and um, that raises lots of questions about how they should be treated. Surrounded by the elephants living in her orphanage now and the memories of elephants she's saved over a lifetime, Sheldrick basks in the knowledge that she's done everything she can for these elephant children, who fill Africa, as Kipling wrote, with their insatiable curiosities. For Living on Earth, I'm Susan Shepard in Nairobi, Kenya. It's daybreak in a cattail marsh near Chase Lake National Wildlife Refuge in central North Dakota. This prairie region is teeming with wetlands and bird life on the spring morning. And joining me now to get up close and personal with the birds here is nature recordist and photographer Lang Elliott. Lang, sounds like a bird symphony here. Holy smoke, it is. It's just an amazing chorus you get there at dawn in the prairie marshes. There's nothing else like it. What's this area look like? 
Well, it's a hilly upland region uh, awash with all these uh, depressions or pothole ponds that were formed during the Wisconsin glaciation. And all these wetland marshes of cattails and rushes just chock full of wildlife. So I hear a noise that kind of sounds like a... A sump pump noise? Who makes that sound? Yeah, uh, that's the sound of the American bittern. It's a, a heron-like marsh bird that's brown with a streaked breast and very camouflaged and lives among the cattails. Uh, the male inflates his throat before he calls uh, to create a resonant chamber and uh, makes that sound, sort of a pump-per-lunk, pump-per-lunk, pump-per-lunk. Did you get so close to record this bitter? Well, uh, my first morning at the marsh, I could hear them out there. There was more than one, and I wanted to get a really nice recording, but if you try to approach one in the daylight, they see you, and of course they uh, hunker down in the cattails, and they grow quiet, or they slink away, or fly away. So what I did is, come evening, I could hear one way out in the marsh, and I thought, well, I'm going to canoe out there and set up a microphone and then come back at dawn and record. But uh, he was so far out, I was afraid I'd get lost in the dark. So I put a little blinking red light on my van, which was parked next uh, next to the lake. And I canoed out in the marsh. It took me about 30 minutes or 40 minutes to home in on this bittern that was calling occasionally. And I set the microphone on a tripod in shallow water next to this patch of cattails where the bittern took up residence for the night. And I strung a bunch of cable back to a platform they had built for goose nesting, a goose nest platform, tied the cable off, and I put a blinking red light there. And then I looked back over the marsh, and I could see where my van was. So I canoed back to my van and slept for maybe four or five hours, got up four in the morning, I could see that blinking light way out in the marsh. So I canoed way back out to that spot. And when it started getting light, he really started pumping. And I got this fabulous recording. I don't, I don't think I could do any better. Now, what are the birds that are common out there among the cattails there? Oh, there's quite a variety, and a lot of them make really interesting sounds. Um, there are little chicken-like birds called rails. Uh, the Virginia rail is out there in the marshes. And even more common is a small rail called the Sora, uh, which has a fabulous whinny-like outburst, sort of a laugh-like outburst. Other species, of, of course, you have the red-winged blackbird, and there can be quite a lot of sound coming out of both the males and the females. Yellow-headed blackbirds just have sort of otherworldly sounds, and they're quite common in some of the cattail marshes. And there's a number of shorebirds in the marsh. Uh, there's killdeer, a type of plover. There's uh, lesser yellowlegs that are quite noisy, semi-palmated sandpipers, American avocets, which are really elegant and beautiful and, and make a lot of sound, the common snipe, 
which flies overhead and makes a really peculiar sound with its wings. And then there, there's the willet, who's quite a noisy creature. And uh, willets are fairly large shorebirds, and they fly overhead, flying over the marsh, going pee-wee willet, pee-wee willet, pee-wee willet. Pee-wee willet, pee-wee willet. What will it do? What's the question is asking here? Well, I don't know. I mean, the question is, is will it or won't it? And exactly what it might do, I'm not too sure. But uh, I hope that it does do whatever it will do. I hear that this area has long been the site of the largest nesting colony of white pelicans on the continent, and that there's some 30,000 white pelicans that usually call the uh, Chase Lake National Wildlife Refuge home. Is that right? Uh, yes. The uh, Well, actually, the recordings that we've been playing come from just north of Chase Lake National Wildlife Refuge in a waterfowl production area. The refuge itself is fenced in, and there's a, a large lake with an island out in the middle that has the largest colony in North America of breeding white pelicans. And uh, the numbers have risen to nearly 30,000, but last year... For some unexplained reason, in late May, they began abandoning their nest, and over just a period of a few days, uh, the majority of these birds just flew away, up and flew away. Leaving their eggs or the, their chicks behind? Leaving the eggs, leaving young uh, that had already hatched, all of which perished. Nobody knows why this happened in the, in the history of the refuge, which was established in 1908 by President Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, they've never abandoned their nests, so it's a real mystery and uh, got a lot of people concerned. I'm told that the pelicans are now arriving again this year. Uh, there's 500 to 1,000 that have appeared, and everyone hopes that they will nest successfully this year, and it will not be a repeat performance. Lang, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. Lang Elliott travels far and wide to record the natural world. His most recent book, which includes photos and a CD, is Music of the Birds, published by Houghton Mifflin. To hear more sounds of birds of the North Dakota prairie region, go to our website, livingonearth.org. Next week on Living on Earth, Earth Day turns 35, and Hollywood celebrates by blowing the planet up in the first nine minutes of a blockbuster movie. But don't worry, there's a happy ending. What we have at the end of the movie is we, we have a backup Earth and we get another shot at it. And I think there's something really quite powerful and redemptive about that. The environmental vision of the late Douglas Adams, creator of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, on next week's Earth Day edition of Living on Earth. We leave you this week with one more bird common to the wetlands. Lang Elliott recorded this marsh wren sitting atop a cattail in a North Dakota wetland. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Steve Gregory, and Ingrid Lobet, with help from Christopher Bolick and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemseff. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. This is NPR. National Public Radio.